just when you thought there was no hope for baby boomers. It's the Rational Boomer Podcast. Logic, common sense, compassion. Yeah, who knew? Now, here's Mike. We are back on the Rational Boomer Podcast. Hope your day is going well. I have to admit, yesterday was pretty busy for me. Didn't have a lot of time to look into the news or keep track of what was going on, so I had to catch up uh, early this morning as to what happened, and we'll get into that. In the uh, evening, my grandson had a soccer game. I love these soccer games. Nothing more entertaining than watching your kids or your grandkids playing sports. Absolutely love it. In addition, my granddaughter, who's two years old, would be there. Now, both sets of grandparents show up. Dad's there. Mom is coaching. And there's the little girl, the (laughs) two-year-old. Now, people talk about the terrible twos, and I don't think they're so terrible. But uh, my little granddaughter is getting to that point. She's talking back. She's acting a little crazy. She's running wild. She's doing what she wants to do. And I know it's driving my son and my daughter-in-law a little nuts because they're laid back. And uh, my grandson was more sedate, just a good boy. He didn't get into much. But this little girl, she's a little wild out there. And that comes naturally when they become two. And I have to confess, the crazier and funnier and wilder she gets, the more I fucking love it. Because I know it is going to drive my son and my daughter-in-law nuts. They're not accustomed to this kind of behavior. But I like the fact that she's bold and outgoing and isn't afraid of anything. Now, we have to be careful with her. We can't let her get into everything. So um, my wife and I spent a lot of time trying to corral her, trying to get her attention away from things she shouldn't be involved in. I mean, she loves running out on the field and hugging her brother, but uh, obviously we can't have that. So we set up other things for her to do. We go on the swings, we kick the ball, whatever we do. But it seems like a simple thing. But in life, I believe we always have to be looking for something that brings joy. And I've, told, I've said this before about my granddaughter. She brings me more joy than I can possibly imagine. So does her brother, but in a different way. I can really relate to this girl because when I was young and now that I'm older, I'm a little more in your face. I'm a little more about speaking out and uh, being a little goofy at times. So I think and I hope that my granddaughter and I are kind of kindred spirits. Earlier in the day, I had to go to a funeral. Now, that's always a sad thing. The woman who died was a friend of my wife's sister, but... Everybody knew the family. Great family, by the way. And this woman was a lot like my granddaughter in the sense that she was very outgoing, in your face, always very bubbly, and always trying and doing all sorts of things. And she was only 66 years old when she passed away. And it was, it was sad, needless to say. She has kids. She has grandkids. She has a husband. And a lot of people are going to miss her. I didn't know her as well as my wife did or my sister-in-law or some of the other people were there. But I did know her. I I mean, I've met her. 
But what I want to tell you is this was probably one of the best funerals I've ever been to. Now, that sounds strange, <laughs> people ranking funerals. But this was interesting because she was the kind of woman she is. And she had a debilitating illness and she knew she was going to die. This woman did what I would think everybody who passes away would do if they had the opportunity. She wrote an individual letter for each of her grandchildren, each of her children, her husband, her brother, and her sister. And then she also wrote uh, a eulogy, basically, that her daughter read. See, what this woman did is she basically produced her own funeral. She picked the music, she picked the uh, way it was going to be presented, how it was going to be presented, who would talk. And I got to say, it was extremely well done. It was in a Lutheran church. Now, as much as I was raised Lutheran, most of the churches I've been in recent times are Catholic churches. It was strange for me when I watched that pastor talk. He knew the family for 30, 40 years, so he knew from whence he was talking. But uh, I really got a good vibe from this guy. He seemed honest and legitimate. He had credibility. And I just really enjoyed the experience. As sad as it was, it was a wonderful send-off for a woman who had a lot of friends, family, and people that cared about her. So that's what I spent doing most of yesterday, not so much looking into the news. That said, I have since looked into it, and we've got some things to talk about it. But first, of course, we have some emails. This one comes from Bruce. Hey, Mike, Tyler was awesome. Listening to the podcast tells me that it's not about age. It's about critical thinking, and Tyler has it in spades. I wish I had the ability to think with such clarity when I was his age. You should bring Tyler back on if possible. And I agree, Tyler did a great job. He's a young man, but he uh, he's very knowledgeable, very aware of what's going on, and has some great insights. Something I noted from the podcast, it was European Christians, those who believed in God, came to North America and tried to exterminate the race of people who lived here, men, women, and children. And to this day, they refuse to acknowledge their past indiscretions, and they still treat them like second-class citizens. And of course, he's talking about the indigenous people and the insights that Tyler gave us. Like you said, we don't want to talk about the past because it makes us look bad. If I was a visitor from another planet, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with these people. If past is a prologue, these God-fearing believers will take your land, try to convert you to their religious beliefs, exterminate those who do not conform, and then pretend like nothing ever happened because it makes them look bad. This is pretty damn disgusting. Bruce. And he's absolutely right. That's exactly what happened. There is no uh, sugarcoating it. That is exactly what happened. And it took the efforts of a lot of people to expose what happened in Canada, as Tyler told us, and now what's being exposed in America. We talk about your Ukrainian atrocities. Well, we had our own fucking atrocities and nobody wants to talk about it. But you know what? We need to. 
We need to fucking talk about it. So, Bruce, thank you for the comment. You're absolutely dead on when it comes to Tyler, and uh, chances are we will probably have Tyler on again. It's good to hear from a millennial that has some common sense and critical thinking abilities on the show. All right, we have one more email. He says, hey, Mike, I've been following you for a while on TikTok and just recently started listening to your podcast. I'm going to do my best not to get on my soapbox. Well, why the hell not? I want to preface this email by stating that I'm 50, a Gen Xer, and biracial. I don't identify one way or the other as far as race is concerned, aside from the human race. But I'm labeled as black as as I have brown skin tones. I've loosely followed politics since I was a kid, but have never fully vested into it as some people are. I have a hard time understanding how people within the VLAX community, I don't know what that means, willingly calling themselves or associating themselves with the GOP countless times. They have been outed as being white supremacist and the like. Yet people of color continue to endorse and follow along with their ideologies. It is baffling to me. I understand the cult-like status and the way of thinking, but it just boggles my mind that people willingly support something that inherently dislikes you strictly based on your skin tone. I have to agree that befuddles me too. I had a conversation fairly recently with someone who I considered a friend and is white, native mix, but is fair-skinned. She actually tried to tell me and convince me that racism isn't as bad as the media portrays, and it was being blown out of proportion. I, of course, was quite dumbfounded by this statement, as any minority would be, and said to her, Are you fucking kidding me? Of course, I told her that just because she doesn't see it and will never experience it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, and is being blown out of proportion. But this has got me thinking and reflecting. Since Trump was elected, it seems that people are way more casual and open about their racism. People who I legitimately thought of as friends, even close friends, have revealed this. Now, I'm not saying they're running around dropping the N-word every chance they get. However, their backhanded comments and the way they approach conversations has clearly shown this to be true. When called out by other minorities, of course, they claim, I'm not a racist. I have minority friends. Oh, well, then that just cuts it, doesn't it? It makes me wonder if I'd missed these signs before. Trump destroyed the country. Or is it attributed to strictly being more acceptable now to the voice your racism? Well, I've rambled on a lot long enough. I appreciate your TikToks and your podcasts. Keep fighting the good fight, Martin. Well, I can only give you my perception of this. I've said all along that uh, we've always had racism. And for the longest time, people have felt that racism was getting better because we didn't hear about it as much. It never really got better. It was always as bad as it is now. It's just that prior to Donald Trump, people were under their rocks kind of hiding from ridicule for their racist attitudes, and they didn't feel comfortable talking about it. Now, Martin, you're absolutely right. When Donald Trump came in and started spewing racist-type diatribes, 
And then more and more people said, well, hey, the president of the United States is saying it. Why can't I? It's open game now on saying whatever the fuck you want, doing whatever the fuck you want. And it's not enough that they start speaking it, but they start living it. And now they start trying to enforce laws that uh, boy racism. And it's gotten frustrating. People were really good at uh, hiding their racism for years. But they were anxious to get out and speak out, say what they believe with their racist tendencies. And you're right, Martin, they did feel more comfortable now that Donald Trump was in. And then the Republican Party supports him. And then the Trump fucks support him. More and more people think it's okay to be racist. More and more people think it's okay to say whatever the fuck you want. And this is just kind of kind of uh, snowballed since 2016. It's a disturbing situation. And some people don't mind it. Because I've, uh, I've spoken to friends of mine that are people of color. And they said, you know, there is a good part to this. It used to be when people weren't comfortable talking about their racist tendencies. We could talk to them and not really know who we're talking to because they hid what they really felt. They were working against us, but they wouldn't say it out loud. And uh, my friends would say to me, now at least we know who they are. Yes, it seems worse than it was, but it's not. It's just that they were fucking hiding under their rocks. Now they are no longer hiding under their rocks. Some people of color, the ones I've spoken to, feel more comfortable because they can identify the racist up front. Now, some of these racists might be their very own friends that they've had for years and years. I know as a white guy, I'm amazed by how many people, friends of my past, that share those racist ideas. And I had no idea for the longest time. But now I do. It's unfortunate that I have to give up some friends because I don't uh, believe or respect how they feel. But now I know there's no unhearing it. And by continuing with them as a friend means I'm supporting how they feel. And I fucking don't. I can't stand to be around these people. So, Martin, I think you're right. I think the fact of the matter is is that uh, they've always been there. They were in hiding. Donald Trump is the reason why they now feel comfortable stepping up and speaking out about their fucking ridiculous ideology. All right. Thank you very much, Martin. I appreciate the email. Let's move on to some of the things that are happening. So we had primary night on Tuesday, but we have no winners yet in the Pennsylvania U.S. Senate Uh, primary between Dr. Oz and Dave McCormick. Yeah, this race was extremely close, too close to call. Apparently, they're still uh, counting the mail-in ballots, and they said it could be days, maybe even weeks, before they have a winner. There could be some court cases about this. But here's what I find confusing. They have a very close election, and now they're painstakingly counting the mail-in ballots. Now hold on there, Baba Louie. Aren't the Republicans the one 
that said mail-in ballots were the source of election fraud and they should be banned? But somehow, now they seem fine and have no complaints about mail-in ballots. They're counting them like they're just as important as the walk-in ballots, and uh, they're not screaming a fucking single thing. I'm confused as Republicans are stupid. I keep saying this, Republicans are stupid, and I know it hurts the feelings of some Republicans, but I don't give a fuck. I hope it does hurt your feelings. Here's the deal. Republicans don't dislike mail-in ballots. Prior to COVID, far more Republicans than Democrats voted with mail-in ballots. The Republicans only dislike mail-in ballots when their votes on those ballots are not for their guy or gal. And if it's a primary where they're both Republicans, it's all cool. Here's where Republicans are stupid. As I said, prior to COVID, Republicans used mail-in ballots far more than Democrats. So if they actually pursue trying to stop mail-in ballots, they are more likely to hurt themselves than the Democrats. As I've said, these idiots have no foresight and they have uh, um, no idea that they are working contrary to their uh, their claims. I once thought it was arrogance. I just thought... They were bullies and they were arrogant and this is what they were doing. But after six years of watching them, clearly it has to do with them being stupid. They say whatever comes to their mind and without thought, it's simply stupid. Let's talk about stupid. The king is stupid. Donald Trump has advised indoor see Dr. Oz in this particular race. He suggested that to Dr. Oz, now that it's tight, now they're waiting for the count. He said, he told Dr. Oz, this is what Donald Trump told Dr. Oz. He said, you know, you should just claim victory because it will make it harder to count votes that they find. (laughs) Seriously? He's doing it to his own party? By the way, Donnie, how did that strategy work for you? Biden's in the Oval Office, and Donnie is sitting in a shitty diaper in Mar-a-Lago. This is just simply fucking stupid. But, but this is the problem. These people are so vile, so abhorrent, that they will eat their own. And that's exactly what they're going to do. Donald Trump wants Dr. Oz to win, not because he's going to be a great senator, but because it's his guy. He put his vote behind that guy. And his winning has contingent on making Donald Trump look good or better. Now, we also thought that Catherine Barnett was going to... uh, surge ahead of both McCormick and Dr. Oz and maybe win this thing, which is weird because she's crazier than both the other two. Neither one of these two that are in this tight race right now will admit that Joe Biden is the president, that the election was not a fraud. They refuse to admit that even though every bit of evidence proves it out and that there's no been no evidence that proves it was. They're just playing the game to try to get Donald Trump on their side. Now, what's going to happen here is if Dr. Oz wins, Donald Trump will scream and yell, see, I'm the smartest guy in the world. I have the golden ticket. I am a kingmaker. 
But if Dr. Oz loses and McCormick wins, he's not that far off of Dr. Oz as far as being crazy and conspiracy theorist and all this stuff. Donald Trump will just say, okay, I'm going to back McCormick now and then try to be the winner. Now, people are all upset that Donald Trump is calling some winners. He's losing some, too, Madison Cawthorn, to be specific. But people are concerned that he's calling these races. You have to understand. You have to understand this is just the Republicans voting against the Republicans. This is not the Republicans against the Democrats. And as I've said before, we want the crazies to be the candidates, the one to go against the Democrats. The crazier, the better. And we're going to talk about how much Donald Trump's value is to his endorsement after the break. But, but uh, <clears throat> they're now fighting amongst themselves as Republicans. But when you look at the Democratic side, it's more easygoing. They're getting higher percentages and everything is running much better on the Democratic side. The crazier these people get, the less likely they are to win. Now, there's a base out there that will vote for them no matter what. But there's people in the middle that really can't agree with some of the things they're talking about. So they're going to have a problem. Do you vote for insurrectionists, anti-abortionists, racist, white supremacist, anti-Semites, misogynist. And I don't think those people in the middle will do it. Now, see, if, if the Republicans came with decent, legitimate candidates, it would make it much tougher for the Democrats, especially in a red state. But now you have a red state, and it's going to be interesting to see how many people in that red state. It's real easy to see Republicans turn out when it comes to primaries to get their candidate in. But in the next segment, we'll talk about something that pretty much explains how that's not a big deal. Actually, what's going on with the Republicans in the primary is a little concerning for the Republicans. Funny thing is, is all I do is I see headlines from CNN and MSNBC and, oh, the Democrats are in trouble. Don, uh, Joe Biden's in trouble. This could be it for them in the midterms. And to me, even though they are the left-leaning media, that is misinformation. That is disinformation. They're not giving the facts. They're not looking at logic. They're not critically thinking here at all. The only thing they're doing is trying to decide what's going to gin up the crowd, make them mad, make them scared, and get them to continue to watch their outlets, whether it be CNN, MSNBC, or whoever. We know Fox and OAN and Newsmax do this, but we have to recognize, to a certain extent, the left media does it too. Now, they will support the left side, which is contrary to journalism. We've got the Fox News, OAN, and Newsmax supporting the radical right, and we have the others supporting the left, but not so much as to be a homer with this. They'll leave enough doubt in there so that there is some concern so they can keep people coming back to their outlet. Now, neither one of these situations defines 
journalism at all. There is no journalism when you watch cable television. There is none. Because journalism is simply somebody giving you the basic information, the truth, the facts, and then allowing you to decide what you think, what your perception of these things are. But in the case with the left-leaning media and the right-leaning media, they tell you what they, which, what they want you to hear, sometimes not all the information, and then they spend the rest of the time trying to sell you on their ideology and pushing you to believe. Now, if you only listen to the left media or you only listen to the right media, you're not getting the whole informa- all the information. You're not getting all the facts. That's why you have to be a little more diligent in searching out news. And for those people that don't have the time or the motivation to do that, that's part of the reason why I do what I do here. I try to give all the information. There's a lot of people out there feeling really bad and worried about 2022 and such. And it's good to be concerned and it's good to worry about it. But it's the people who have this fatalistic attitude about this that trouble me. And I hope by doing the TikToks and the podcast here that we can get some more information out that uh, will better inform people and make maybe take away some of that fear or that negativity. That's my intention. Whether I do that or not, I don't know. That's up to you. And I certainly don't have a platform as big as CNN, MSNBC, or let alone Fox News. But you got to start somewhere. You got to try. When my granddaughter, who's two years old now, is 25 years old, and I'm in my 80s, maybe 85 years old, at least I can look at her and say, at least I tried. At least I tried. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. On every show, I tell you that if you have questions, comments, or complaints, Just reach out to me at rationalboomer at gmail.com. Those emails come directly to me, and your input is crucial to this show. The show is called Rational Boomer Podcast, but that's not to suggest that I'm the Rational Boomer. I am not. I am simply a Rational Boomer. All of you are Rational Boomers. Anybody of a like mind is a Rational Boomer. Strength comes in numbers and not through an individual. You have perceptions and insights that may have never occurred to me. This isn't a show about me. This is a show about us and gaining a voice in this country. There's 70 million baby boomers in this country. Yeah, I know the younger folks would prefer to push us aside. Every generation has done that. But we are a formidable force if we can get together and speak in one voice. This is why I encourage you to let your friends and family know about the Rational Boomer podcast, not to satisfy my ego, but to give us more power, a stronger voice to help right this ship we call the United States of America. Lastly, I'm offering the opportunity for my listeners to be on the show. Now, it could be two minutes, it could be a half hour, it could be the whole fucking show. I'd much rather have you on the show than somebody pimping a podcast or a book. I want to hear what you think. I want to know what you know. The Rational Boomer Podcast is all about us. All right, this next story comes from CNN on Wednesday. Political analyst John King laid out how former President Donald Trump's endorsement can impact Republican primaries. Now, I have to admit, I do watch CNN from time to time. I don't like everybody on CNN, but I do like John King. 
and I came to recognize his abilities during the elections. He kept us straight. He cut things down to the bone so we understood what was going on. So I have a lot of respect for John King and the way he does things on CNN. Now, specifically, he noted Trump's endorsement consistently seems to net a candidate around 30% of the vote. And that may be sufficient to win some races, but not others. And I believe he's talking about the difference between primaries and then, of course, general elections. What do the primaries in Pennsylvania and elsewhere, other crucial states like Idaho, Oregon, Kentucky, North Carolina, tell you about how successful Trump's endorsements have been? Now, let's be clear at the outset, we're still early in the primary season, King said. But we do have a trend so far. We'll see what happens as we move through the primaries. But Dr. Oz is Donald Trump's candidate in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He gets about 31.2% of the vote. In Ohio, J.D. Vance was Donald Trump's candidate. 30% of the vote is what he got. Right about the same as Oz. Now, there's some governor's races. Let's look at the Republican side, Nebraska. We went through the primary Tuesday ago. Trump's candidate was at 30%, roughly 30%. Now, last night, or the night before, out in Idaho, Trump was on the losing end. He supported the lieutenant governor. She got 32% of the vote. King says, you notice the pattern there? It happens in House races as well, said King. Let me give you a chance to look at it. There are some of Trump's endorsements. You'll see a line, 30%, 32% here in Pennsylvania is an exception at 44%. Even in House races, it was enough in North Carolina for Bo Hines, 32% was enough. He won there. It was enough, uh, 2%, uh, 30.2% for J.D. Vance, an Ohio State race, the Senate race. And we will see if 31% is enough for Dr. Oz, but it depends on how many candidates are in the field. How strong are the other candidates? In North Carolina, the incumbent, Madison Cawthorn, got 32%. That was not enough, and of course he lost. Now what's interesting about this is the Democratic primaries are much different. You're seeing votes Uh, candidates getting votes of 40, 50, even 60% of the vote goes to the winners. This shows a lot of divisiveness in the Republican Party, which is going to be a problem for them in the general election. Now, it's not surprising that Trump's endorsement is worth essentially 30%, because, of course, the base is 30%. In the Republican Party, you have a far-right radicals and the more moderates. And I have to believe that those moderates just can't stomach what the radical Trumplefucks are saying and doing. Think what you want about the midterms. But this is a divided party. Because of that, it's weakened the party. Now, if we had a full, strong Republican Party, it might be a different story. But we have essentially two separate parties within the party. Even if the slice that's moderate and normal is thin, it still lessens the effectiveness of the Republican Party. So when we come to the midterms, what's going to happen is, if we have these crazy candidates, like it appears we're going to have, 
and is exactly what I hope to see, and Trump's endorsees get in there, or maybe even the crazier ones that aren't endorsed by Donald Trump, ultimately they will be endorsed by Donald Trump. If his guy loses, the next guy will come in, and then he'll endorse him, hoping to redeem himself from picking the wrong guy. But this is going to be a totally different story when it comes to the general election and they're going up against the Democrats. It's uh, fucking weird, actually, that the winners of the primaries are only getting 30-32%. Now, will the other 60% come their way when it comes to uh, the general election? Well, I suppose that's true, but let's be honest. There's still far fewer Republicans than there are Democrats. If we're talking strictly numbers, it's still not going to be enough. But at the same time, now that these things are being exposed about Donald Trump, the investigations, possible indictments, the overturning of the election, the insurrection, all of these things are coming out, and they're going to come out in a big way in the public hearings. Are those people going to be able to stomach what the Trump LaFuck stand for in order to vote for these crazy people? And I don't think so. I think this is going to be a turning point. Normal people with critical thinking capabilities will realize this is damaging to the country. Now, as I've said before, they can do one of two, th- three things. They can vote Democrat instead. They can vote independent and pretty much waste their vote or just not vote at all. And any one of those options is good with me because that all means Republicans get far fewer votes. People keep crying and whining about the midterms, and I just don't fucking see it. I saw a kid on TikTok tell the same story. He did it very well. I wish I could do it like he did it. But I just logic doesn't tell me that they have a chance in the midterms with the anti-abortion shit and all the things coming out. The Republicans aren't being well thought of, at least Anyone beyond the 30% that are their base, they will believe anything and they will vote for their base no matter what happens. Here's an interesting story. Donald Trump's new business partners inadvertently admitted that Donald Trump is a fucking horrible financial risk. Donald Trump's... Now, you remember this. This is the group that's um, got the... uh, is behind the... Truth uh, Social app, you know, the one that Donald Trump started that has been a fucking absolute failure. They want to take this thing public. They want to raise $845 million. And a lot of people from the company that's backing this has a lot of money in this. But they they, they produce a document talking about the potential risk with Donald Trump. And just just listen to this. Donald Trump's extensive history of business failures was documented in a new legal filing by his new business partners. This is what they said. Donald Trump's business history has been so filled with disastrous ventures that it's been hard to keep track of them all. This was written by a Los Angeles Times business columnist, Michael Hiltzik. Digital World Acquisition Corp., which is the Special Purpose Acquisition Company, or SPAC, taking Trump's true social media platform, 
public has conveniently listed them in a document it is required to file publicly before selling the stock. The DWAC is aiming to raise at least $875 million. Now, Hiltzik linked to this SR registration statement, which he described as hilarious reading. The 107th page of the filing begins a section of risks related to our chairman, President Donald Trump. Now, this is the company that's backing him. This is the company that's put money into him. This is the company that's looking to take him public and get $845 million. This is what they wrote. A number of companies that were associated with President Trump have filed for bankruptcy, the filing states. There can be no assurances that TMTG, Trump Media and Technology Group, will not also become bankrupt. These, these aren't the best salesmen. The document details Trump's history of repeatedly bankrupting casinos. The Trump Taj Mahal, which was built and owned by President Trump, filed for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 1991. The Trump Plaza, the Trump Castle, and the Plaza Hotel, all owned by President Trump at the time, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 1992. The uh, THCR, which was founded by President Trump in 95, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2004. Trump Entertainment Resorts Incorporated, the new name given to Trump Hotel and Casino Resorts after its 2004 bankruptcy, declared bankruptcy in 2009, it acknowledged. It also noted the demise of other organizations associated with the former reality reality TV star, specifically listing Trump Shuttle, Trump University, Trump Vodka, Trump Mortgage LLC, travel website GoTrump.com, and Trump Stakes. The document also noted that Trump's legal exposure as he is reportedly under investigation in multiple states and by the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. It's quoted as saying, President Trump is involved in numerous lawsuits and other matters that could damage his reputation, cause him to be distracted from the business, or could force him to resign from TMTG's board of directors, the document reads. Additionally, TMTG's business plan relies on President Trump bringing his former social media followers to its platform. In the event any of these or other events cause his followers to lose interest in his message, the number of TMTG's platform could decline or not grow as TMTG has assumed. (laughs) And they're trying to take this public. And they're writing this shit themselves. Now, the document listed lawsuits by Capitol Police officers, members of Congress, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, along with investigations by the district attorneys in Manhattan and Georgia, along with the New York Attorney General Letitia James. It also noted lawsuits from protesters Michael Cohn and writer E. Jean Carroll. Although TMTG is not a party to any of the above reference matters, TMTG cannot predict what effect, if any, an adverse outcome to such matters or even their continued existence 
what may have on uh, President Trump's personal reputation and TMTG's business or prospects. Now, the L.A. Times writer Hiltzik uh, identified what he said may be the scariest line in the entire document. (laughs) That line is, the foregoing does not purport to be an exhaustive list, it reads. (laughs) That means all the shit we just wrote? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot more. There's a lot more. Now, this is a company that has partnered with Donald Trump and hopes to take their company public and raise $875 million. Yet all the signs suggest that this is going to fail because everything Donald Trump does fucking fails. But yet they're still trying to pitch this thing. I mean, the app is out there. It's doing horribly. Nobody's on it. There's nothing but memes and bullshit on it. Donald Trump just started to try to post on there and nobody gives a shit. So here's this big investment company trying to bring Donald Trump fame and fortune with this new app. But yet they write this letter because they're required to. And they're talking about all the risk by having Donald Trump as the chairman of their board. What, what, what do they expect to fucking happen from this? If there's any governing body that has to look at this and give them the, the nod to take it public, they got to say no. This is a risk we can't take. We can't afford to be embarrassed by this shit. This is how bad Donald Trump is. His own people have to own up to all the shit shows he's created, all the failures he's had, all the bankruptcies he's filed. They have to admit it. And in the process, they're trying to sell people to buy into this shit. If they do go public, if they allow it, I got to tell you, it's probably going to be a horrific failure because the only people that are going to invest in it after they've seen what's going on here might be their base. But that's only 30% of the country, and half these fuckers have been grifted to death by Donald Trump already, and they probably don't have the kind of money to invest in something like this. Donald Trump is an utter failure. He's always been a failure. And this, what I just told you, proves he's a fucking failure and proves the people that are investing in him know he's a fucking failure. Here's one that's interesting. I don't know if we take it too seriously. Citing the suspension of Rudy Giuliani's law license by the state of New York, an activist organization seeks to have Senator Ted Cruz's license taken away and disbarred over his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. The complaint against Mr. Cruz, filed by a group called 65 Project, focuses on baseless assertions by Mr. Cruz about widespread voting fraud in the weeks between Election Day and January 6th, as well as his participation in lawsuits protesting the results in Pennsylvania. The New York Times reported this on Wednesday. Now, the 65 Project advisors include Hillary Clinton ally David Brock and Paul Rosenweig, a conservative and former Republican who worked on the Ken Starr special prosecution team investigating the Clintons. The 65 Project was formed to hold accountable lawyers involved in a series of lawsuits seeking to undermine President Biden's victory in 2020. Now, the complaint argued, just as Mr. Giuliani has been disciplined for his conduct, so should Mr. Cruz. 
In many respects, the question of whether Mr. Cruz aided criminal or fraudulent efforts has already been answered affirmatively by the federal court. Mr. Cruz chose to offer his professional license to Mr. Trump's arsenal during the latter's assault on our democracy. He cannot be shielded from the consequences of that decision simply because, unlike Mr. Trump's other attorneys, he happens to hold high public office. The complaint argued, for the reasons set forth, we respectfully request that the Office of Chief Disciplinary Counsel investigate Mr. Cruz's conduct and impose appropriate discipline. Now, will this actually happen? I would guess probably not. But it needs to be pointed out, this made uh, Ted Cruz's day a little bit shittier, and I'm all for that. Everything they've stated in this is true. And what they're asking for is appropriate. But we know how politics and government and business works. People like Ted Cruz get away with things. We'll see if that holds true. But maybe this thing gets the ball rolling for other entities to look into the legitimacy of Ted Cruz's law degree. Because Ted Cruz has been an utter piece of shit. He's a liar. He's a conspiracy theorist. He will say and do anything as long as it benefits him, even if it's a lie. We cannot have a U.S. senator blatantly lying just so he can benefit or his friends can benefit. This can't be. This can't stand. This has to change. And whether it will or not, who knows? But I have a feeling when the January 6th Insurrection Committee comes out with their public hearing uh, or hearings, Ted Cruz is going to be in the mix somehow. All right, the last thing for me, it's kind of local, but I think uh, it's of national interest and uh, I think it's important to keep up to this case. A former Minneapolis police officer pleaded guilty Wednesday to a state charge of aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter in the killing of George Floyd. As part of the plea deal, Thomas Lane will have a count of aiding and abetting second-degree unintentional murder dismissed. Lane, along with J. Alexander Kung and um, Tao Uh, to Tao. They have already been convicted on federal counts of willfully violating Floyd's rights during the May 2020 restraint that led to George Floyd's death. Now, the state is recommending a sentence of three years for Lane and has agreed to allow him to serve the time in federal prison. Their former colleague, Derek Chauvin, pleaded guilty last year to a federal charge of violating Floyd's civil rights and faces a federal sentence ranging from 20 to 25 years. Now, that's over and above what he got from the state of Minnesota for killing George Floyd. Chauvin earlier was convicted of the state charges, as I mentioned, and he was sentenced to 22 and a half years. Now, the question is, if he gets charged with 20 or 25 years on this federal charge, uh, will it run concurrently? or And what that means is sometimes if you get two charges and you're, you're sentenced to 20 years twice, 
they'll let them run side by side so you get out in 20 years. The other option is to run the 22 and a half years and then start the 20 years on the federal charges. I'm not sure what they're going to do with it. But he's not a young man. I think he's in his 50s. Um, and uh, if he's in jail for 22 and a half years, I'm good with that. By the time he gets out, he'd be pretty much worthless after spending 20 years in jail. Now, Lane's plea comes during a week when the country is focused on the deaths of 10 black people in Buffalo, New York, at the hands of an 18-year-old white man who carried out racist uh, live stream shooting Saturday in the supermarket. Some people say, well, you, you boil it all down to race. Well, it is fucking race. The guy in Buffalo went there to kill black people. That is a racist behavior. Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd, and race was an issue. I mean, just think about this. George Floyd, they thought he passed a um, counterfeit bill, $20, okay? He ends up dead. He's a black man. It ends up being on video, so we know about this, so now he's held accountable. This 18-year-old, I keep saying kid, and people say, he's not a kid, he's a man. I understand that. He should be sentenced and punished as a man, because he is. He's 18. I kind of say kid because it's kind of disparaging. That's what I mean it to be. I don't mean he's not accountable. I don't even mean that his parents aren't accountable. I don't know if this is a true story, but this is what I've heard. Apparently, his father bought him the AR-15 that he killed all these people with for his birthday. Now, we went through this before, and parents can be held accountable. So it'll be interesting to see if his parents end up being charged in this situation. But the funny thing is, this 18-year-old guy shoots 10 people, 8 of them black. Shoots 13 people, kills 10 people, 8 of which are black. Somehow he's subdued perfectly nonviolently. Nothing was happening. He didn't get punched in the face. He didn't get wrestled to the ground. He just stepped out. They cuffed him and they dragged him to the car. Now, people have said, had he been black, it would have been a different story. And clearly that's true. We've seen it, like in the case with Derek Chauvin and George Floyd. All George Floyd did was was allegedly try to pass a $20 counterfeit bill. I don't even know if he actually did. I don't remember anybody coming out and saying, yes, it was counterfeit or no, it was counterfeit. But regardless, regardless of what he did, regardless of his background, that does not give the police department the opportunity or the right to be the person who arrests them, be the judge and the executioner. And that's exactly what happened to George Floyd. Now, some other people have said to me, the three younger people that were with him, they shouldn't be held responsible. Well, I disagree. You know, people have made the statement that Derek Chauvin was kind of a bully. He was the senior officer. He told them what to do. They couldn't do anything but what Derek Chauvin told them. So they didn't really, really have a choice when it came to holding George Floyd down or whatever it was they did. And I disagree. And this defense has been upended before. 
you remember in the Nuremberg trials, all these people said, well, I was just doing my job. I was doing what my superiors told me to do. Yeah, that didn't cut it for them. It doesn't cut it for these three younger men. I'm sorry they were involved in it, and I'm sorry they didn't have the courage to say, fucking stop. Don't kill this guy. But they didn't. And if they didn't have the courage to do that sort of thing, they shouldn't be police officers. And they were certainly accessories after the fact to the death of George Floyd. So there needs to be some punishment. It looks like they're getting three or four years, and that's fine. You know, maybe they don't deserve life imprisonment. I'm not a judge. I don't fucking know. But they need to do some jail time. And fortunately, it looks like all three of them will be doing some jail time. And that's the way it should go. Hopefully, this accountability will stop people from doing the same thing down the road. But what we've seen is Day after day, we keep hearing about cops killing black people. Apparently, they're not able to learn lessons. They don't understand that they can be accountable. This goes back to people who are just flat-out racist or just absolutely gutless and uh, react emotionally, pull their gun and start shooting, and then ask questions later. Either way, it's unacceptable behavior for our police officers in this country. This has to be rectified. This has to be fixed. I've said this before. People have talked about defunding the police. I don't think that's a good idea. We need police departments to protect us on the streets. Otherwise, it'll be like the Wild West out here. But instead of defunding the police, I think we should professionalize more the police departments. I think we should pay police officers more money with hopes we get better candidates as police officers. I think they should be trained extensively physically and emotionally. They should be gone through with a fine-tooth comb, and then they should be tested. And not until they pass the test and pass muster for having the temperament they should have as police officers do they get to hit the streets. And then, once they hit the streets... There is absolutely no second, third, or fourth chances or a union that's going to save them from being uh, kicked out or convicted of clear crimes. Until we can accomplish that, we won't have a police department that is doing the job the way it's supposed to be doing. Because in spite of Derek Chauvin going to jail, this doesn't seem to have stopped these people. All it does is make them mad. And then they say, okay, then I'm not going to do anything. So when it comes down to defunding the police, you've basically done that anyway, because now these police will say they're too afraid to do anything and just refuse, when all it is is a fucking protest because they got caught in the act of being criminal in their own right. Something Something has to be fixed with this situation. What I'm suggesting is the only thing I can think of. That doesn't mean that's the answer. But I got to tell you, we haven't seen any fucking answers or any opportunities to try something different. They just perpetuate the same culture and we get the same results. All right, we're going to wrap up the Rational Boomer podcast. I want to thank you for spending time. I can't tell you, for as many podcasts as I do almost every night, sometimes twice a night,
You folks will sit down, take time out of your lives, and actually listen. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. I spent many years in radio. I never really thought about the audience as far as how many or whatever. I did my job. When I left radio, I told my boss, who I wasn't fond of at the time, I said, I bet I can go online and get a bigger audience than you do. And guess what? I did. So to be able to accomplish that, I appreciate you for being here and listening and interacting and coming on the show and those sorts of things. It allows me to, at least in my mind and in my own confidence, continue to do it. So it is much, much appreciated. All right, let's wrap things up. You have a great day. We'll be back again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Rational Boomer Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.